Very simply, if you could boil this down and understand exactly what this is, it's simply a worship service where we worship the person of Jesus Christ. We believe that Jesus was God. We believe that he died and rose and lived the life for us. We couldn't live in perfect obedience to the Father on our behalf, in our place, and died taking our sin, shame, and guilt towards God and the wrath that we deserved. And he kills it, buries it, rises, and gifts us his Holy Spirit to walk in newness and fullness of life. And so we worship Jesus a number of ways. We do it by singing songs like we just shared with you uh, that talk about who Jesus is and what he's done. We worship Jesus by sitting under the preached word, which talks about who Jesus is. If you're wondering what the Bible kind of centers around, it's just Jesus. So if you want to have the first quiz in your life of Christianity, that's it. Uh, Jesus is probably the answer to every question uh, that you would ever be asked about the Bible. So God gave us the Bible, his written revelation to us, so that we would know fundamentally more about the person and work of his son, Jesus Christ. Then we also worship Jesus by giving because God gave most generously in his son towards us. We give in the small black boxes along the wall in the back and many of you guys give online as well. So um, thrilled that you're here. Here's the, the plan for us. Um, in God's providence, he kind of scheduled this out so that we could um, finish up Luke on Easter Sunday. So we're gonna get about halfway into Luke 23 today and then Good Friday, we're gonna finish teaching Luke 23 on the crucifixion and the burial and then ultimately we are going to have Luke 24 for Easter Sunday, which really is the resurrection, then we're going to ta- teach on baptism, then we're going to have our baptism celebration, and then we're going to start Ecclesiastes in May going through the summer. So uh, cool, one person's thrilled. Uh, really, as we were talking and praying about that, the elders were like, I guess everyone's going to cancel their summer vacations uh, as we teach through Ecclesiastes. So uh, you can right now start getting ready to uh, just cancel all of your trips uh, from chasing the wind. No, just, just kidding. Uh, maybe not. But anyways, all right. Um, why don't we just, I, I love to give us time, just space in here to, to rest our souls and our hearts before we dive into the text, into God's word. We know that there are lots of things competing for our attentions, right, even as we walk in this room, uh, even as you sit here and get ready to hear from God, right? Not from me, not from a man, but from God himself. So let's give uh, the Lord just a moment to search our hearts. Um, David will say in the Psalms, God search me and know me. He'll say test me. Know my anxious thoughts, where are there anxious thoughts in your heart and mind that might cause you to not hear what you need to hear? What can rest your soul? It is God alone. So would you ask him to do just that? Father, we're grateful for the privilege and luxury it is to sit in a room freely by your grace to sit under the proclamation of truth. Thank you that we can know you. Thank you that you're a God that reveals yourself, that is not a God that's abstract, but one who desires for us to know him and be known by him. Not just in a way that is general, but specific in the ways that you save and love us and make us your own. God, I pray that you would open blind eyes, open deaf ears, soften hard hearts, and help us to walk in what you give us this morning. For the glory of your name, Jesus, amen. Amen. Luke 22, all the way to the end. And I always say, if you don't own a Bible, there are Bibles in the back. And please keep that. It's our gift to you. We don't ever 
uh, charge anyone for a Bible. It's, it's, uh, we're thrilled that you guys are taking the Bibles and using them. Luke uh, 22, we're going to start in verse 63, and here's um, what's kind of happening if you're jumping in. Luke is a gospel writer. There's four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and uh, he's writing this guy, Theophilus. We learned this about two years ago when we, st- we started this series, and um, Theophilus is likely a Roman official who's skeptical of the life and teachings of Jesus Christ. And so I always say, if you're a skeptic, if you're a doubter, if you're a seeker, man, this is great for you because Luke just doesn't want you to hear some truths about this Jesus. He wants you to be transformed by these truths. You can be made new, not just be made nicer, not just be made more moral, but be made new in the person and work of his son. And so Luke is writing this to us, to him, uh, as we hear this. And we've been seeing the whole life of Jesus. He preaches, he teaches, he heals, he casts out demons, he raises the dead back to life, he uh, helps the blind to see, the deaf to hear, he helps the lame walk. He does lots of things all the while preaching and teaching that the kingdom of God is coming, namely in what he will do in the cross, kill it, being killed for the sacrifice for sin from God on our behalf, and then not only that, but there will be a kingdom that will come. So you see this already not yet that is consistently rolled out. And what we're doing is getting into the final grit of Passion Week. And I always said, it's awesome that in God's providence that we were able to actually walk over the last number of weeks through the final week of Jesus' life. Because today is Palm Sunday. Today inaugurates, right, Passion Week where Jesus entered into the city and then you count down the days to Good Friday and ultimately Easter Sunday where he will rise. And so um, what we've been doing is seeing all of the life of Jesus in this last Holy Week, this last Passion Week of Jesus, and it is going to hit fever pitch. We're at the final grit of all of this, and Jesus has been arrested through the conspiracy of religious leaders and political leaders. Uh, These two groups disagree on basically anything, but they found final agreement in that, hey, we both hate Jesus, we both hate his growing popularity, so at least we can agree on that thing, and then you're going to see how all this rolls out ultimately to the false verdict that he is guilty when he's really sinless, when he's really free, and last week we saw Jesus kind of coming out of the garden. He's tied up. He's betrayed. We saw Peter and Judas, two men that betrayed Jesus. One did not repent, and it led to his ruin, and one did repent, and it led to everlasting life. And so here we pick up. It's after midnight. He's been arrested, taken off to the house of Annas. Remember, there was this big courtyard. Uh, Annas tried it because he's just super corrupt and evil. He tried to find some indictment on Jesus. He couldn't find one, so he passes him off to his son-in-law, Caiaphas, who's across the courtyard. They take him across, and Caiaphas is there. He is the high priest. He gathers the Sanhedrin together. They eventually begin this illegal trial where they indict Jesus as a blasphemer saying this guy claims to be the Messiah when he's really not. He claims to be God when he's really not even though Jesus is and even though Jesus repeatedly said those things and therefore he should be killed. Now understand, here's why the religious leaders do all of this to try to bring us up to where we're at with Rome, okay? You've got to have basically your religious uh, accusations satisfied, your legal accusations satisfied. So we said that's why in the garden when you see the temple police walking with clubs, they're like, man, I don't get a sword. Well, that's because they have no right to kill anybody, right? Only Rome had the authority to take someone's head off. So you've got clubs and swords demonstrating who they really were. And so they both come in and the temple police need a reason to take him ultimately to Rome who has the full and final right to kill Jesus. So they think, hey, we've basically had him claim that he's king, which elevates him above Caesar. So now we have our, our kind of political accusation and he claims to be God, which is straight up blasphemy, that you would claim to be the Messiah, the awaited one. So now we got our religious accusation. And so now here in the secret of the night, um, we learn that they beat him, mocked him. And verse 63, here's what Luke writes. Now the men who were holding Jesus, this is the temple police and the religious leaders, 
were holding Jesus in custody and were mocking him as they beat him. They also blindfolded him and kept asking him, prophesy, who is it that struck you? This is, this is scorn. This is um, basically a sarcasm. Then they said many other things against him, blaspheming him. And when day came, the assembly of the elders of the people gathered together, chief priests and scribes, led him away to their council, and they said, if you're the Christ, why don't you tell us? But Jesus said to them, if I tell you, you won't believe, and if I ask you, you won't answer. But from now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. So they all said, are you the Son of God then? And he said to them, you say that I am. Then they said, what further testimony do we need? We've heard it ourselves from his own lips. Okay, so this whole thing is anything but a mock trial. It's a straight up beat down. Like this is not, hey, let's try to figure something out. It's how can we mock and with all the hatred in our hearts that Jesus in his own ministry has built up and welled up in them over time as they hate that he attacks the religious system. He hates that he's tearing down the walls of this divide of you have to be good enough for God. You have to do the right thing, attend the temple right, confess right. Jesus says, I'm gonna be your high priest. I'm the one that confesses before the Father that you are mine. I'm gonna be the ultimate sacrifice for your sin. So all this is happening, and so they curse him, dishonor him, spit on him, mock him, shame him, blaspheme him, and after an entire night of beatings, they ask him a series of questions, and they all hinge on one thing. Are you the only God? That's all they they want from his lips. They want that for their religious accusation. We want you to confess that you are the only God. And because if they can do that, I said they can satisfy both religious and legal accusations. So the first question is, are you the Christ? Now this is fundamentally, at its basic level, them saying, hey, are you the Messiah? Are you the the one we're waiting for, right? The Jewish people are waiting for a deliverer. They're waiting for a redeemer. And so they're going, hey, are you that guy? Are you that man? Are you claiming to be that God that is promised to come and save us? And Jesus goes, I love it. I've told you a hundred times. Like for anybody, right? All the skeptics say, well, Jesus never claimed to be God. We've always stopped. I've stopped repeatedly as we've walked through this gospel and showed you where he continues to claim to be God. So here, Jesus himself, who is God, is going, I've told you this a hundred times. That's why I'm on trial. Like that's, that's why I'm here. That's why you're beating me. That's why you're mocking me. That's why you're scorning me. I've already mentioned these things to you. And I could tell you again, but you're not gonna believe me. I could just keep telling you because I've told you a hundred times and you're still gonna have deaf ears to what I have to say. Your head and heart is closed off to me. Now, maybe some of you have never been told that Jesus claimed to be God, right? You were told he was a nice role model. He was a cute teacher. He had some good ideas, some good philosophies. He taught you how to live right and do things right. But Jesus repeatedly, emphatically, and clearly claimed to be God. You can't get away from that. So you have to do some hard work with that. Either Jesus was just a nice role model who just claimed to be God, which makes him a lunatic. Like, I mean, can you imagine that? I mean, even his own family members would have thought he was needing to be put in a psych ward if that were true, right? So Jesus clearly says, I claim to be God. So either he is who he says he is, or you got to write Jesus off and put him away. And Jesus continues to emphasize, even here, he's saying through his answer, yes, I'm the Christ, but it doesn't matter what I say. I've said this a hundred times, and you haven't believed me. You haven't listened to me. And Jesus doesn't only say, I am the Christ. He says, I'm the son of man. Now, this is profound. Here you have Jesus not only claiming to be 
the Christ, but the Son of Man. And he rips from Daniel 7, which was written about 700 years prior, that he is the Son of Man that was going to come. Now, he rips out of a text that these people already knew, the religious police. They knew the whole Old Testament. They had the Torah. They knew the prophecy in Daniel that there would be this Son of Man coming, that the Creator himself would enter creation and pull back all that went wrong in the fall, that all the bondage and, and slavery that they were a part of, he would deliver them, he would uphold them, he would free them, he'd be their conquering hero, he he would be their Messiah. He would be their Redeemer. They knew that this guy was coming. And so they knew he was a son of man in that he would come and look like man. He would look like us. He would come in human flesh. And so Jesus is not just describing that he is God, but he is this long-awaited one who they've longed for to save and redeem them. Jesus is just flat out acknowledging that. And this son of man, Daniel 7 says, will be worshipped as king of kings and lord of lords. He will rule over all languages, all tribes, all tongues, all nations, all peoples. And he is coming. And I love it. Really what Jesus is saying out of his bloodied mouth is I am him. I'm him. And it's almost like you hear Jesus going, you want me to go deeper? You want me to go further? And here's what's amazing. He says that, brothers and sisters, <laughs> with absolutely nothing to gain if he's telling a lie. Like if Jesus is lying through this whole thing, like you gotta help me understand why he's lying. Like he's got absolutely nothing to lose. So here he, he lays this before them and just to make sure, I love the response of the religious leaders. Um, they're like, okay, so you are the son of God? <laughs> Do you see how they just keep asking after he lays out, I am the Christ, and the Son of Man, I am this God that is to come, I am the creator that entered human history, entered his own creation, who's gonna redeem you, gonna save you. And they're like, okay, so, so you're telling us you are the Son of God, just so we're clear. <laughs> and Jesus is like, um, you say that I am, I've told you repeatedly I'm the Son of Man, so you're just repeating what I've already said. <laughs> and then it's like, oh, he's guilty, we heard it. Right, like I mean, they could have done this at any point in time, which further affirms that the God of the universe is in charge of this whole thing. Because God is setting up the perfect time for his son to be killed for a sacrifice for sin. We looked at that a number of weeks ago, especially and particularly with the Passover happening. And so understand, friends, this is why Jesus is arrested. This is why he is beaten. This is why he is scourged. This is why he is mocked. This is why he is spit on. This is why he is cursed. And this is why he is crucified. Like, we love to pick aspects of the gospel. Like, Jesus was our moral teacher. He enacted the best humanitarian efforts on the planet. He has social justice on lockdown. And so that's why somehow they wanted to do all of those things to him. Listen, they didn't want to do any of those things to him because he did great things. They fundamentally wanted to do those things because he claimed to be God. That's why there is hatred in their hearts. That is why they are fundamentally rolling out this whole plan to execute Jesus. And all the while, he is fully able to recant, is he not? I'm not God, and his life would be spared. He can do it at any moment. Jesus, at any point in time, can say, yeah, no, I'm not him. And they'd be like, okay, you're free to go. But they know that this is not what Jesus will say. And what's awesome is we know, right, he rises three days later, basically going, I told you I was God. Right? And then all his followers who were cowards become conquerors. Because they see that he was who he said he was. Chapter 23, verse 1. Look what happens. It continues to increase in pressure. Then the whole company of them, it's all these temple police with all their clubs attempting to seem mean. 
they arose and brought him before Pilate, right? They feel like, okay, now he's said he's God. He's elevating himself above Caesar. He's claiming to be king of kings, the son of man. So, okay, now we can get him with a political accusation. And they began to accuse him, saying, we found this man misleading our nation, forbidding to give us tribute to Caesar, and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. And Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answered him, you have said so. Then Pilate said to the chief priests and crowds, I find no guilt in this man. But they were urgent, saying, he stirs up the people, teaching throughout all Judea from Galilee even to this place. Okay, so they have religious law and legal law totally satisfied. They can now come to Pilate. They take him to Pilate because they want to get Pilate to believe he's a threat to Roman authority. He's a threat to Rome itself. So somehow he can finally enact the killing of Jesus. The problem is blasphemy ain't going to work for Pilate. Blasphemy alone is not going to work, which is why it's a religious reason to kill Jesus, but it's not a political reason. Do you see how they're trying to like kind of kind of force the law here? They're trying to say, okay, well, he said he was a, a king, so doesn't that kind of like elevate him above Caesar? So now you have a reason, right? Because no one can do that, right? No one can claim to be a king outside of Caesar. So now you have a reason politically to kill him. And Pilate still, because Rome actually prided themselves in keeping justice and really ruling well, they did, despite how wicked and horrific they were at times. And so you bet Pilate's going, well, I gotta have like some clear reason here. I can't just have you guys going, this guy who's bloodied and beaten, claiming to be God, king over Caesar, you think I'm, like, is this a joke? Like, really? That, that's, that's your greatest accusation against this man? And that's why here, Pilate goes, and there's, there's scorn in this statement. Are you king of the Jews? Like, you gotta hear him say that. Like, you're bloodied, you're beaten, you're, you're spit upon, you're, you're, at the low, you're a nobody. Like, like, you're the one claiming to be a king? Is, it real? is this for real? Like, temple police, like, this is the guy you brought? This is who you want me to kill, and ultimately with Barabbas. Like, this is the guy you want to take place of the one who caused an insurrection and murdered? Do you see how insane it looks? Do you see how crazy it looks? And Jesus just simply gives a legitimate answer to his legitimate question. You said I was king of the Jews. You just said it. And then Pilate's like, I don't find any guilt in this guy. So listen, at this point, Pilate man is looking for a cop out. Like he knows this whole thing's a sham. So he remembers that, and this was very, very common, that, that um, you have Jesus from Galilee, and he remembers probably hearing about that. So he's like, oh, wait, that's kind of like Herod's jurisdiction. So now I'm going to pass him off to Herod, see if Herod can just deal with this, because this is just annoying. So he passes him off to Herod's jurisdiction, and this is what verse 6 says. When Pilate heard this, he asked whether the man was Galilean. And when he heard that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him over to Herod, who was himself in Jerusalem at the time. Might have been there for Passover, might have been there for meetings, might have been there for rulings. And when Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad, for he had desired a long time to see him. Remember, Herod had only heard about him. He had never seen him. And he knew he was a magic man. He knew all the miracles that he did. And so naturally, Luke goes on to tell us, he was hoping to see some sign done by him. So he loves that Jesus is here. Oh, cool, I get to see you do some magic. <laughs> so he questioned him at length, and Jesus, I love this, made no answer. Chief priests and scribes stood by. They're like the, just the annoying in-laws or, you know, uh, aunts and uncles that just won't stop. 
Right, they're everywhere. They just keep following him around. So you got to picture this. As Jesus gets passed on and on to different things, there's this little squadron of the Sanhedrin, like, eh, just kind of like following around going, yeah, yeah, don't you know who he is? So like, that's what they're doing. They're just, it's so annoying. Like, those gnats that just won't go away. So, so here they are again with Herod in this next you know, sort of, uh, of settings vehemently accusing. And they're just accusing him back to verse 2, which we'll talk about in a minute. And Herod with his soldiers treated him with contempt and mocked him. Then arraying him in splendid clothing, he sent him back to Pilate. And Herod and Pilate, this is bizarre, became friends with each other that very day. For before this, they had been at enmity with each other. Okay, let's, let's walk through this for a minute. So Pilate sends Jesus over to Herod to deal with him. This is a very common practice. And Herod's glad to see Jesus. This goes all the way back to his Galilean ministry. If you remember, Herod was the one that was terrified that he might raise John the Baptist back from the dead, right? I don't want to do, I don't want to kill him and have this Jesus do that. So I think time had worn off so Herod wasn't necessarily aggressively wanting Jesus' life, but he'd still heard about all the conversation and the murmurs that had circulated to hear about this Jesus that did tons of miracles, tons of healings, and he wants to meet him to see if he's the magic man everybody talked about. He's eager. He's curious. (laughs) And it says, Herod questioned Jesus at length, but Jesus just stood silent. Jesus never said a word, Isaiah 53, 7, not a word was spoken from his mouth. Here's why this is insane. What's the very thing Jesus should be doing? Defending himself, right? He's not crying out for his innocence He's not pleading not guilty. He is taking the sin, the shame, the scorn. He is taking the false verdict. Why? Because he knows what he is set to do. His face is fixed, Luke 9, towards the cross, and he knows what he must accomplish for the salvation of sinners. So he stands there silent. He doesn't say anything. And Herod's view at this point is that Jesus is nothing like he heard about. He's looking at him going, wait, this is the great Jesus? I mean, understand what's happened. He's been up hours not sleeping through ridiculous trials, mocked, spit on, scorned, shamed, beaten, bloodied. He's bruised up, comes to Herod, probably bending over, can hardly talk, can hardly breathe. And Herod's looking at him going, wait, this is the guy. So he just joins in the mocking. He's like, this is ridiculous. This is the guy that claims to be a king? Look at him, man. He is a nobody. He's just a a filth. He's a piece of junk. So then they throw a robe on him to mock him and jeer him. He just joins in the celebration. This is ridiculous. Yeah, you deserve at least this for claiming to be a king. You deserve at least this for claiming to be above Caesar. And you see how all of this is beginning to build up. And he's thinking, man, this guy's no threat. Where's the army he's got, right? Where's his weapons? Where's his artillery? Where are all his men lined up? <laughs> we know where Peter is, right? Running with his tail between his legs. So, so, so far too, even his followers seemed a bit terrified. So Jesus has nothing in that way built up for him. And meanwhile, the religious are just screaming out accusations. And those are the same accusations that are likely from verse 2. Here, this guy's leading the whole nation in an insurrection. He's a threat to Rome. Don't you see? He's going to have everybody rebel. On Monday when he came in on Palm Sunday on a cult, didn't you see everybody hailed him as king? They shouted out, Hosanna. And he's going, wait, hold on a second. Are we looking at the same two people? Because the person I see has no authority. He is totally dismantled. He's at his wit's end. 
you think that this is the same guy that I have to be worried about overthrowing Rome, the largest occupying nation that governs and rules and reigns from India to Europe? Are you kidding me? So you feel the weight of this scene. So he joins in the mockery. And then he's like, man, go back to Pilate. (laughs) So he passes him back to Pilate. He didn't want to be a part of it either. And through all this, what a mess. Pilate and Herod form a friendship around the hatred of Jesus. They hated each other, yet they found good scorn against hating Jesus. Uh, This plays out in lots of ways in our lives, does it not? You, you can hate someone, but as soon as you get to slander and get against somebody, all of a sudden there's unity in your hearts. It's how the devil loves to bring about unity in people that is false unity and divisive unity. Yeah, I don't like him either. Yeah, let's talk about that. Yeah, let's find a way to... Your boss at work, a friend that hurt you, whatever it is. Yeah, let's just, let's get everybody together. So we were once not talking at all, but that can be the one thing that makes us for something instead of the one thing being for unity, for love, for grace. And so here we see it happen even with two ruling kings who absolutely at one point hated each other but found unity in trying to cause disunity in the hatred and through the hatred of Jesus. So at this point, this is what you have. Annas, Caiaphas, Pilate, Herod, face to face with Jesus. And what are they doing? They're asking him the wrong questions. They're not asking him, hey, we need forgiveness of sin and you can give it to us. Hey, we're in need of redemption and you can give it to us. Hey, we've heard your teachings. We've seen you demonstrate who you are through your miracles and and your healings. We've, We've heard you're the son of God. We've seen you demonstrate that. Give us eyes to see this glorious truth of who you are. Instead, they ask him all these other questions that beat around the real question. Now, my question to you then is, what is you? You are face to face with Jesus often. It might be through friends. It might be through sitting here. It might be through the word that you read. It might be through times of prayer. And do you just ignore and try to beat around that bush? Or do you just ask the honest questions that need to be asked and deal with what what's right in front of you. Like, how do you live the Christian life? Some of you, maybe even you're put face to face with Jesus every single day and he's like, man, I've got forgiveness for you. I've got life for you. I've got healing for you. I've got redemption for you. And you keep asking him all these other questions. And that's what these people continue to do. Verse 13, look what happens. Pilate then called them together the chief priests, rulers, and people, and said to them, you brought, now he's back to Pilate, you brought me this man as one who's misleading the people. And after examining him before you, behold, I did not find this man guilty of any of your charges against him. Neither did Herod, for he sent him back to us. Look, nothing deserving death has been done by him. I will therefore punish and release him. It's so clear. You can't read the Bible. You can't read the Gospels without seeing that Pilate clearly doesn't want to condemn Jesus. Like, he doesn't see any reason for his guilt. He actually sees him as innocent, and we're well aware of that. So here's what he does. He had tried to say, hey, Jews, can you just settle this for yourselves? Uh, And they couldn't do it. So, okay, let me pass it off to Herod. Hey, Herod, can you take care of this? He couldn't. Now he's going, okay, maybe we can just compromise. Then we can get this thing off my back. And here's what's happening. On certain occasions, like Passover, um, Rome would enact this, basically, this, this act of goodwill, this act of mercy. It was only a few times a year. And so he thinks, all right, well, here's my chance to do that. Here's my shot. So what I'll do is I'll offer them to release one of these prisoners. And of course they're going to pick Barabbas. 
right? I mean, who's going to want Barabbas to be freed? <laughs> and so he's going, I'll therefore punish him, release him. I'll beat him a little bit. I'll scorn him a little bit. And according to Mark, he turns to the people to choose a prisoner to be released and receive pardon. And according to Mark and other gospels, he goes, hey, don't you want Barabbas? An insurrectionist, a murderer, a rebel, Interesting, Barabbas' name means son of the father. You're gonna see the son of God take the place of the son of a father. In verse 18, here's what happens. Here's how they respond. But they all cried out together, away with this man and release to us Barabbas, a man who has been thrown into prison for an insurrection started in the city and for murder. Pilate addressed them once more. He's going, this can't be right. Designed to release Jesus, but they kept shouting, crucify, crucify him. A third time he said to them, why, what evil has this man done? I've found in him no guilt deserving death. I will therefore punish and release him. He says it again, a third time. But they were urgent, demanding with loud cries that he should be crucified, and their voices prevailed. So Pilate decided that their demand should be granted. He released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder, for whom they asked, but he delivered Jesus over to their Will, okay, this is absolutely, totally unthinkable. As you're reading this story, they all together declare we want Barabbas. Even though Pilate, the the juror, the ruler says, I don't find any reason to cause him to be guilty. Now you know from other gospels that the Sanhedrin were running around stirring up the crowd going, hey, yeah, don't you want this guy crucified? Don't you see what he's doing? He's making threats. Uh, Matthew 27 says at this point, actually Pilate's wife comes to him and slips him a note and is like, man, I had this terrifying dream. It made me suffer. Don't let this innocent man get off. She even appeals to his innocence but says, there's fear welling up in me. I'm terrified what might happen from this crowd, from these religious leaders if you let this guy live. So Pilate is just terrified. He wants to please man. He cares about popularity. He cares about esteem. He cares about the idolatry that clearly resides in his heart to where it comes to a point where he has no option but to say, okay, fine. Okay, I'll Hand over Barabbas. And they're all saying, let the guilty man live and kill the sinless man. This is the crowd on Monday, most of which said, you're awesome, you're king, you're here to save us, who are now joining with Judas, joining with Herod, joining with Annas, joining with Caiaphas, and saying, would you kill the one who is Sinless. It's really unthinkable. I mean, think about, the, think about the time this is all happening. It's Passover. They're all there to remember the goodness of God, to celebrate the mercy of God, to bring their sacrifices for their sin, bring these lambs that would be slain, and all the while as they're remembering the goodness of God, they're screaming out to kill the Son of God. What irony of mockery. What irony in the human heart. So let me land the plane with a couple thoughts here. What you're seeing through this whole scene is really just this. The the irony of mockery, the irony of the human heart, the contradictive ways that the uh, the sinful bents 
in our hearts because here's the first thing you see. Um, the irony in this whole thing is while Jesus might look like the criminal, um, he looks like the one that should be judged. In fact, he's the one who is the judge. And the criminals thought, the would-be judges thought, hey, we dictate the destiny of Jesus when really the man who they are about to crucify determines the destiny of them. And meanwhile, as they're putting Jesus on the dock to judge Jesus, they don't realize that really Jesus is going to judge them. That's the irony of this whole scene. That's what's just amazing, is you even just kind of look at this whole picture. It's total irony. Jesus is the Christ. Jesus is the judge. Jesus is the one who has full authority, full ruling, full reigning. He is the one who made heavens and earth. He's the one who has full cosmic rule. He's not just king of the Jews. He's king of the cosmos. And here, these little puny people on little puny thrones are going, hey, we're going to judge you. We're going to condemn you. We're going to crucify you, not well knowing they're still in the place of God. They're still in the hand of Jesus. And he's going, yep, this is all to accomplish what I will bring about in the reconciliation of sinful men and women towards a holy, righteous God who dwells in infinite perfections. You're just helping me accomplish what I'm doing. And when I rise and when I ascend and when I return, you bet you're not going to bow and be judged in a mirror looking at you. You're going to be judged according to me and I will have the gavel. I will have the righteousness. I will have the rights. I will have the authority. I will have the, the full terms where every knee will bow and everyone's gonna scream out for a champion, gonna look everywhere and your champion's gonna be the one that you murdered and killed. So let's go. Let's finish this thing out. And the irony is that many of us are just like these people where Jesus says, yes, I am king and you say, no, you're not. And maybe even so some of you believe he is and he's demonstrated he is, you don't want him to be. Because here's the truth in our hearts. We don't want to tell Jesus that he has no authority. We just want to tell him what his authority should be. Right? But is Jesus king? I mean, this is fundamentally the call of the good, great news in the gospel is you lose your life to find life. You forsake it. You deny yourself. You pick up your cross and follow Jesus Christ. That has been the consistent call, the consistent teaching, the consistent plea of Jesus himself. This is not a half gospel. This is a whole rounded gospel where you don't just trust in Jesus. You have fire insurance for the remainder of your life. You trust in a king who buys you, owns you, grants you, redeems you, frees you, loves you, adopts you, everything so that now he calls the shots. Now he leads you into joy. And it's not because he's trying to take from you. It's not because he wants you to follow commands that will basically lead you to enslavement. He wants to be generous to you and give more life to you. I say all the time, Christianity is all about pleasure. It's all about joy. We are not Christian prudes. We actually love it more than the world, and we believe that when you chase Jesus and have him, you'll actually reach a pleasure and joy and satisfaction in the worship of him that supersedes every last thing that you chase that is made. You need something beyond that, which is the maker. Love it. And so here, the question is, is Jesus like these people, just someone who you say, yeah, you're king, but he's not king of your marriage? You, you tell him what authority he has. Yeah, you have authority up to here. But you don't really expect me to love my wife as Christ loves the church when this happens, right? You don't really 
call me to submit graciously to my husband when he does this, right? I'm not talking about them leading you into sin. You never follow them into that. I'm talking about the posture of your heart and the godliness that dwells within you through the Holy Spirit's power to operate in the ways that God has said for your joy. Is he king of your wallet? Is he king of relationships? Is is he king of decisions? How do you make decisions? Or is it just, I'm going to do whatever I want. Uh, You don't have authority there. You have authority here, Jesus, right? You just pick and choose. But Jesus says, I am king. I am Christ. Because here's really what you're doing. You're doing just what these people are doing. You're really putting Jesus on the dock and judging him and telling him what he can and cannot do instead of sitting in submission going, no, you're the judge and you can say whatever you want and I can trust you as judge to dictate and show me and lead me into ways that are helpful and profitable and everlasting for me. The, The second thing and last thing this text has everything to do with is Jesus being God and why that's good news. And this is good news to us if he is. And it's very bad news if he's not. And this is what Paul writes in the book of Colossians, verse one. He pulls from a lot of this in the Gospel of Luke and writes this. He, that's Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Jesus, all things were created in heaven and on earth visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through Jesus and for Jesus. And Jesus is before all things, and in Jesus, all things hold together. Yes, Jesus was a man. Yes, he ate, yes, he slept, yes, he had family, yes, he was hungry, yet he did, yes, he did all those things, and yet he is God. So our life, according to Paul, who grabs from all the truths of the life and teachings of Jesus is that, yes, Jesus is man, but he's not just a man, he is God. So our life fundamentally is held together, not just by Jesus being humanity, but being deity, Like that's the only way this thing's gonna work. Like if Jesus is only man and he's not God, he doesn't have full deity, then your life will not be held together. This is why actually Paul's just taking a jab at Caesar here. He's going back. If you read the um, writings of Marcus Aurelius, he he makes this claim that actually I believe Paul is making fun of where he says, hey, everything comes from nature. Everything goes back to nature. Everything's in nature, very pantheistic. That's really the essence of what that is. And here he's basically saying, hey, Caesar got it wrong. Marcus Aurelius, you got it wrong. Nature's not the end of all things. Creation's not the end of all things. They point to something higher than creation, greater than creation, more sovereign than creation, more mighty than creation, and that thing is Jesus Christ. So now you have everything in life pointing up to that. So creation is not ultimate. The creator of creation is who is the son of man who came in the form of a man, God through Jesus Christ, who is the Christ, who is the son of God. Every last thing Jesus said in Luke 23. Underneath all of that, Jesus is appealing to this. So wherever it is that you're lacking in your life, whatever threads are being unwound in you, wherever the place is your soul is not settled, it is fundamentally, according to Jesus' lips in Luke 23 and Paul in Colossians 1, it is because something else in the universe is trying to settle your soul outside of Jesus Christ. 
There's something you're after, and until you resolve that, you will constantly chase the wind. And so Paul reminds us as to why it's such good news that Jesus is God. Which is why Paul says he created all that's visible and all that's invisible. Jesus, at creation, second member of the Trinity, he was there, he made not just what was visible, what was invisible. So he didn't just make what you see and what you have, he also made the invisible realities that you don't even see, you don't even realize are the ways that God has wired into creation the way that things should work and operate. So why does any of this matter? Um, For one, If this is true about Jesus, that he is God, that he is who he said from his own lips in Luke 23 and who Paul affirms and many other writers in Colossians 1, then the commands of God should be celebrated in your life and home like Paul celebrated them in the Psalms. Why? Because every time God lays before you a sweet command, you know he's not laying it before you to make you have greater favor with him or greater righteousness or greater atonement or greater grace or greater merits. That was finished in full as Jesus paid the debt for you. You now revel in those things because you know that this God is now after wiring the invisible things you can't see into ways that will lead you to fullest life and joy. And so when you're confronted with, wait, God, this is how marriage works? You don't go, mm, I'm not really sure of that. No, he knows. He made you. He made the DNA. He made the ways that all of this should look and operate. So we say, I trust you not because you're trying to take from me, but you're trying to be generous to me and lead me into something beautiful. When you're faced with decisions or relationships or it doesn't matter. I'm not saying this is easy. But I'm saying we can delight in those things because Jesus is God and because we can trust what he says and what he lays before us. Because we know his character, we know his heart, we know his hope. So whether it's about your children, your money, your time, it's all about Jesus being above and central and lining up everything in accordance to how he says those things should be. Because otherwise you're gonna find yourself in a place of foolishness like the people yelling, crucify that man who is God. Second, and lastly, it transforms your worship. Fundamentally. Don't miss what Paul says. All things were created by Jesus and for Jesus. So why does anything exist? Why do you have your house? Why do you have your spouse? For Jesus. To glorify the name of Jesus. So ultimately, everything exists for him. I mean, we've talked about this for ages here. If if you've been here since day one as a church, this is something we've been talking about forever since we went through our vision and mission, since we went through identity, since we taught through this book and other books. So we learned the goal of our hearts is Jesus. Here's why this is good news. He can only be this if he is God, which he is. So if he's the ultimate goal of your hearts, here's why this brings about joy. Your ultimate goal in life will not be to simply fix your marriage. Your ultimate goal in life will not simply be to avoid or get out of an addiction. Your ultimate goal in life will not simply be to escape and have a new job. Your goal in life will not simply be you fill in the blank. If your goal is Jesus Christ, then you realize all of those things in your life are to bring about great glory to his name where you find rest in your soul, sitting at his feet, enjoying his presence, identifying with his love, his person, his work, and you're satisfied there. Your identity is in I am his and he is 
his mind. So whatever hits me, whatever comes before me, I'll sit and be okay and push through and endure because the goal is not a circumstantial change. The goal is I have Christ. And that's what the Bible will continually and repeatedly say. So I don't know what you've been taught. I don't know what gospel you've been taught. I don't know what you think Christianity is about, but I am pleading with you and loving you enough to say Jesus might not change a thing in your life, and he absolutely might. I don't have control of that, but I do know that he consistently says, I'm giving you something better than all of those things, and it is me. That's what he's saying to us. That's what he says to us every Sunday. That's what he says to us every time we gather together on Sundays. So now we can, oh man, wake up Monday morning with all that's before us, with a clear vision of what he has for us. Otherwise, we will say foolish things and judge Jesus wrongly and be just like the people who mock and belittle his name, which is an act of treason of the universe which circles you all the way back to Genesis 3, which is why from the beginning God said, I'm gonna send somebody to fix this in your heart because all of our bents are that. Everyone wakes up with a bent and a disposition to choose outside of God's good design. Like no one's free of that in here. I'm not free of that. Elders aren't free of that. You're not free of that. And let me just tell you if you begin to do the, the former, if your goal in life is just to see about these differences and these changes, if that alone is your pursuit, you will find yourself where your knuckles grow very white and you grow very weak and you grow very angry and eventually you just keep giving in and giving in and giving in. And you will live a disappointed, exhaustive life where benchmarks of your spiritual growth will just be frustration and discontentment. And Jesus says, I want to free you from that. I died to free you from that. That's good news for us, that Jesus is the Christ, that he is the Son of Man, that he is the Son of God. Friends, we don't believe that Jesus is God because it's something we made up. We don't believe Jesus is God because it's something church history said that's what he was. We believe Jesus is God because Jesus said he was God, and then he validated he was God in his resurrection. And so we can trust him with that. So I want to give us some space this morning to examine our hearts and to go before this king who is the Christ, ask God for help, ask God for kindness, ask God for mercy. He rose from death. We're going to celebrate that next Sunday as to why that is, again, the greatest news that we serve, a Christ who rose, who did not stay dead, who by his death defeated death, defeated sin. But I want to give you guys a moment just to consider what is Jesus wanting to reveal in you, expose in you, alter in you. Remember, he's after your heart, not just your hands. He first and foremost goes after the heart because that is where transformation is found. We need worship altercation, not behavior modification. You will hear this over and over again. Where does God want you to worship him more fully, more centrally, more clearly? Maybe you're in this room going, I can't believe you would want to confess your sins to God if he really is who you say he is, holy, just, righteous, dwelling in infinite perfections. Why would you want to confess our sins? Well, the Bible says we should be eager to do that because he is a God that loves to forgive, that loves to fix what's wrong, that loves to redeem, that loves to restore. 
that loves to make right. Would you ask him for help this morning? If you're a blood-bought citizen of the kingdom of God, would you ask him for grace to walk this week with the goal being him and not maybe just things changing? If you're not a Christian, if you've never bowed your knee to this Jesus, might you ask him, God, reveal yourself to me, make this clear to me. God, open my eyes to this glorious truth. You can repent and believe and become one of his this morning. Man, don't be like Pilate and Herod and the crowd and the Sanhedrin who asked Jesus everything but forgive me. Forgiveness is available, redemption is available. You can be made new through the cross of Christ this morning. Your sins can be put to death and you can walk in the freedom that is Christ and not the enslavement that is sin. Father, we're about to observe your supper that you gave us, and it's a great picture of this body broken, this blood that was shed to bring us to you. God, would we cherish it this morning? Would we treasure it this morning? Would we be nourished by remembering this act of love, this act of grace when you were condemned falsely, when the sinless lamb was slain and the guilty man was set free? Might we see in your son and in Barabbas, what we see in every person that becomes a Christian, that you paid our debts so that we could be set free. Might we enjoy you in Jesus' name, amen.